You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading tonight comes from Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another in every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And continuing with chapter four, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the word of God. Thank you uh, for that reading. That was a wonderful reading of Hebrews 3 and 4. I want to give you some peace right now in your own soul that we're not going to go through that passage verse by verse. All right? We're going to do a little thematically. Uh, As Nathan mentioned, I've known Nathan for 20 years or so now, and um, ever since you guys planted Christ Church, I've been wanting to come. It just took him a long time to invite me, but he did finally. Actually, I invited myself. I was in Los Alamos uh, yesterday with uh, working with some small groups up there, and so I told Nathan, I was like, I'm close, so please let me come, and he did, so thanks. It's good to be with you guys. As you heard read, we're going to be in Hebrews 3 and 4 today, and here's why. Because these chapters are about rest. Uh, The last couple of years have been wearisome, haven't they? In ways that you're aware of, but also, I think, in some ways that we underestimate. As I've visited churches and talked with pastors around the country, I can just see in all of them and hear from them that people feel a little worn out. 
And I, my guess is that some of you came in here today feeling a little worn out, a little heavy-hearted, anxious, uncertain, as you should be. We live in a crazy world, and all those feelings are really normal. And so rest sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, when we think about rest, we typically are thinking about it at like the surface level of our lives. We're like, I need a nap. Today, I wanted a nap really bad. Or I need a vacation. Or like, I just need some relief from various pressures that I'm feeling in life. Yeah, Who would, I would want all of that. I'll take all of that now, or right after church. Um, but here's what I've been thinking about, is that that kind of rest, as important as it is, doesn't speak to the deeper restlessness in our hearts. Our weariness isn't just on the surface level. Our weariness is something much deeper, and therefore we need a rest that's much deeper. We need rest for our souls. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is about. Uh, The original audience that would have gotten this letter was mostly Jews who had believed in Jesus, uh, but things, they were getting worn out. Things were getting tough. Uh, There was religious persecution, there was cultural pressure coming against them, and I just think there were times where they thought, is this worth it? Like, it would be easier to go back to our old lives. Can we just go back to the way it was? And I wonder if some of us are in that place of feeling like, man, I I don't know if this is worth it. Maybe you don't want to go back to your old life, but maybe you do just want some kind of more comfortable Christianity than what God calls us to. As we'll see, any kind of life that we would choose for ourselves, any kind of rest that we would seek for ourselves, ultimately ends up just being shallow rest. And the good news of Hebrews 3 and 4 is that Jesus invites us to and offers us deep down soul rest. So I just want to ask three simple questions and answer them from these chapters. So one, what is this rest that he's talking about? What keeps us from it, and how can we experience it? All right, so first question, what is the rest that Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about? As I said, we're not going to go through verse by verse. I think the key to understanding these chapters is to see that he's talking about really the whole story of redemption, but through the lens or along the thread of the theme of rest. And so to really get our minds around it, we've got to back up a little bit and follow the whole storyline. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, he takes us back to creation by saying, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting Genesis 2. So listen to Genesis. The end of Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He was satisfied. And then a couple verses later, and on the seventh day, God finished his work, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now what does it mean that God rested? Is he tired? Does God need some downtime? No, he's God. Uh, It just means that he's finished. The work was complete. The word here means ceased. And so God ceased from the the work of creation. The ideas of completeness and satisfaction, this tells us something about the way the world was meant to be. We were meant to live and work in a context of God's delight and joy and peace and rest. And you see what it looks like in Genesis 2:15. Now, in this verse, there's another word for rest. So, earlier it was to cease, and here the word rest means to settle in. So, Genesis 2:15. God took the man and he put him in 
rested him in, settled him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So there's work. Adam and Eve had work to do, but they worked from a place of rest. It wasn't toilsome in any way. It was a happy stewardship of the abundance of God's gifts and the blessing that he had bestowed upon them. It was like kids on Halloween night sorting out candy. That's work, right? There's an accounting of inventory. There's an organization of product. There's trade and commerce happening. There's governmental oversight. You got to make sure little brother doesn't get talked into trading his Snicker bar for a Tootsie Roll. That's injustice, right? It's work, but it never feels like work to a kid. It feels like a happy stewardship, doesn't it? Blessing has rained down upon us tonight. And now we have this empire of candy to rule. Tim Mackey says, on the seventh day, God, oh, I lost it, here we go. God entered his creation like a king entering a temple to rest and rule. And he asks the humans, he creates humans and tells them to rest and rule with him in his creation. That's the way the world was meant to be, resting and ruling with God. That's the way the world will be someday. In between, we live in a world that has fallen into sin. And so for Adam and Eve, instead of enjoying all of the good things that God had given them, they decided, they believed really a lie, that life would somehow be better if they pursued it on their own terms. And so they disobeyed God's command, and when they did, everything fell apart. Their fellowship with God was broken. Their work turned into toil. God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth now. By the sweat of your face shall you eat of it. All of their rest and peace and joy has turned into weariness and toil. But God did not abandon humanity in that place. He set out to restore them. And a big part of his redemptive plan you see unfold through the nation of Israel. And so Israel you know, begins with Abraham, Genesis 12, and it quickly moves along to a place where the, the nation of Israel, God's people, are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And that is a quintessential picture of toil and weariness and unrest. God raises up Moses, delivers them out of Egypt, promises to take them to the land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is delicious. Everything good you can imagine is, about, is honey. It's captured in that word. It's Canaan. And Canaan is described as a land of rest. Okay, so between Egypt and Canaan, Israel wanders around the wilderness for 40 years. It's probably like a 10 to 12 month trip. This is every dad's nightmare. But the reason that they wandered around for so long is because of their disobedience. God continually led them and provided for them, and they continually grumbled against Moses and against God. Now, all of that rebellion comes to a climax, and this is the story Hebrews 3 is referencing. It comes to a climax right when they get up to the land of Canaan. They're not in it, they're, just, they're on the border of it, and they're about to go in. The problem, of course, is that it's inhabited, right? So they just can't walk in and be like, hey, God gave us this, so, you know, bye. And it's not going to work like that, right? They're going to have to take it by force. And so what they do is they send 12 spies into the land to see what they're up against. And the spies are there for a while, and they come back, and 10 of the spies say, yeah, it's a no-go. Not going to work. I mean, the cities are fortified. There's some dudes over there 
big, I mean, spent a lot of time in the gym, these guys. There's some big dudes over there. And the other two spies are like, yeah, that's all true, but we can do it. I mean, God promised it to us, and he's with us, so we have to do it. And the people, like we do, believe the majority report, and it freaks them out. When you read the story in Numbers, it says they cried, and they wept, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, we want to go back. What? True story. They tried to remove Moses from leadership and elect a new leader who would take them back to Egypt. That's craziness. And the consequence for their madness and sin, God says, this generation, these people, will not enter my rest. That story became like a symbol for rebellion against God. Hundreds of years later, King David talks about that story and applies it to the people of his day. And then Hebrews 3 quotes King David in Psalm 95 talking about that story and applies it to their day. And so let's look at Psalm 95 because it's, it's kind of the central part of, of uh, Hebrews 3 and this is part of the storyline. And Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So it's a call to worship and an invitation to rest, to be sheep in the hand of God, in their shepherd. Next verse, though, is a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he goes on to say, like Israel did in the wilderness, because we all know what happened to them. They did not enter God's rest. And so... David was saying, just as God was speaking to his people in the wilderness, he's still speaking to us today. And the author of Hebrews is saying basically the same thing. Just as God was speaking to the people in the wilderness and was speaking to the people of David's day, he's still speaking to us. And so in chapter 4, verse 1 of Hebrews, it says the promise of Sabbath rest remains. In verse 9, he says it again, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The invitation to enter God's rest is for us today, is what he's saying. Okay, cruising pretty good here, aren't we? Creation, fall, redemption through Israel, and moving on to David, and the whole thing is moving along to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand, which is a huge topic but it taps into creation and what the world was meant to be. The kingdom of God is the rest and rule of God with his people. So Jesus is tapping into that. Nathan read uh, earlier from Matthew 11 the invitation that Jesus gave, and it's so appropriate here. He said, come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and find rest for your souls. I know we're moving fast through a lot of scripture here, but I don't want you to miss that that invitation is live. If you came in today anxious and heavy-hearted, you can leave with soul rest, because Jesus is here offering it to us. In the first song we sing, there's that line that says, ponder anew 
what the Almighty could do if with his love he befriends thee. I just think our hearts need to be captured by that today. What could life be like if this would really sink in that the Almighty God has befriended me with his love and invited me to find rest in him? Uh, the image of the yoke that Jesus uses is pretty great. Uh, so a yoke is just a piece of equipment that an ox or really two oxen would wear. And it just distributes the weight and makes the work of plowing the field easier and more fruitful. Now, implied in what Jesus is saying is that all of us are under some kind of heavy yoke. All of us in some way have set out to build a life on our own terms, to pursue righteousness and rest apart from God. And in doing so, we have yoked ourselves up to something. The fear of man, the love of money, the need for control, trying to be good enough. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's how people live under the curse of sin. That's a heavy burden. Tell you what, come to me. Learn from me how you can live and work from a place of rest. You see the connection to life in the garden? Jesus doesn't take away work. He invites us into fellowship with himself so that we can learn to work from a place of rest. That's the kind of rest that Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about. It involves a relationship with God in which we delight in him and steward his blessings and his gifts that he's given us. And all of that's possible because of Jesus. Okay, if I had to boil all of that down into just one simple phrase, I would say that true rest, true rest is being satisfied with God. Not someday, but right now in our everyday lives. Okay, who wouldn't want that? What in the world would keep us from being satisfied with God? That sounds amazing. Well, Hebrews 3 tells us what would keep us from it. And he's pretty straightforward about it. He just says that what kept them and what keeps us from experiencing God's rest is unbelief. In the middle of chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95, the rebellion in the wilderness. And then a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 16, he starts to get to the bottom of things, to the root of the problem. And the way he does it is he asks three questions using the language of Psalm 95, and then he answers them with his own words. So let's read that together. Hebrews 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? All right, so you've got these three words, rebellion, sin, disobedience. And then in verse 19, he kind of wraps it all together in this one word. He says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief, that's the root problem. Now, he's not talking about a belief that God exists. Israel believed that God existed. How could they not? They had seen him work miraculous ways for 40 years. So that's not what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? What is the nature of their unbelief? Well, it's dissatisfaction with God and his ways. 
They did not want to have to depend on God every day. They were afraid of what obeying his command would cost them. It seemed impossible. And so they grumbled. Now, it's easy for us to look back and be like, stupid Israel. But I think we need to see that it's hard to detect unbelief in your own heart. It's deceptive. Uh, For starters, it doesn't happen all at once. It grows over time. So think about the way a lake freezes. It doesn't freeze overnight, unless you're in Omaha, Nebraska. I lived there for four years. That could happen there. But most lakes don't, right? there, There are layers of cold and ice that set in. And in the same way, our hearts harden over time through many little experiences of discontentment and disobedience. Even more deceptive is the fact that when we're talking about unbelief, we're not really talking about it at the level of what we say we believe. We're talking about it at the level of how we live, what people will call our functional beliefs. So in the profession of faith, we said what Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, but functionally, tomorrow you're going to want things that God hasn't given you. Right? Uh, it's a simple example to think about prayer. You can value prayer. You can know how to pray. You can tell somebody, I'll pray for you. You can do all of that and then actually not really pray that much. Well, how could that be? Well, because functionally we operate kind of with self-concern and self-reliance. And so this is the kind of unbelief that he's talking about. Now, you might say, I don't know, man. I don't know if that prayer thing works for me because I don't think it's that. I think it's just like I'm busy and forgetful. And I would say, yeah, see, that's why it's hard to detect. Nobody wants to admit that they live in such a way as if they don't need God. And so we don't want to think we have a hard heart, so we don't really pay attention to it. And over time, it hardens. We could illustrate this with almost any belief or commitment that you have. The point is this. There are gaps, and sometimes big gaps, between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. Israel said, we believe in God. He's taking us to the promised land. And they felt it. I mean, they were, they were in it. When Moses came down from the mountain and said, okay, look, here's all the stuff God wants us to do. You know what they said? Somehow in unison, I don't know if they wrote a song or what, but all together they said, we will do all that the Lord commands of us. They were in it, but when their faith got tested in the wilderness, when it got uncomfortable, their true beliefs were revealed. Their functional beliefs. Functionally, they did not want to trust God and walk in his ways. And over time, they drifted from God, and this is what God says about them. Hebrews 3, 9 and 10, they put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Okay, look, so we all have moments of unbelief, right? We all have weaknesses. He's talking here about a pattern. The concern of Hebrews 3 and 4 is that We would say we believe in Jesus, but then we would live our lives in such a way that we distance ourselves from him. And over time, our hearts become hard toward him, cold toward him, unresponsive to his word, unwilling to admit need and just throw ourselves at his mercy. What does all that have to do with rest? 
good question. It's a good question. I think that the gaps in our lives point to the real reasons that our souls are so weary. If you think about it, the gaps represent ways we're trying to build a life on our own terms, apart from God, rather than trusting in Him. So if, if rest is being satisfied in God, then any pursuit of rest, apart from God, is not only going to be unsatisfying, it's going to be incredibly wearisome. Our souls are meant to live in a state of harmony, right? Back to the creation story. Harmony with God and with each other and with creation itself. But instead, because of sin, what's going on inside our soul is our soul is always trying to deal with and manage the, the disharmony between what we say and how we actually live our lives. It's exhausting. What I'm trying to say is this. We're never going to find rest until we admit that it's not just about our circumstances. I'm not just weary because things are crazy in the world. Jesus lived in a pretty crazy world. I mean, at his birth, there was a governmental attempt on his life. And for most of his ministry, he was wanted dead by really everybody. That's pretty stressful, I think. And you're like, well, yeah, that's Jesus. Yes, exactly. Peter says he set an example for us so that we would walk in his steps. And Jesus has shown us that there is a way to live life in this world from a place of rest in the midst of total chaos. And we're never going to get there until we admit that our weariness isn't just about our circumstances. It has something to do with the unbelief in our hearts. We don't just need a vacation. We need rest for our souls. Harmony between what we say and how we live. Or how do we get there? Well, Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 14 gives us some application. At first, this kind of seems random. Uh, and then when you put it in context of what he's trying to get at, then it makes sense. Here's what he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the warning. Here's the application. But exhort one another every day, and as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The thing about the gaps in our lives is it's really hard to see them ourselves. You know who can see them? Your friends. So obvious to them, especially your spouse, real obvious. Uh, I've probably my two closest people in my life are my wife, Debbie, and then one of my friends, Kendall, who has actually a classmate of Nathan's in college. I've been with both of them for 20 plus years. And um, I can't tell you how many times Debbie will say to me like, hey, there's this thing in you that I don't think you see. You're like this. You do this. And my humble, non-defensive response is always like, what? No. I'm not like that. And we'll argue about it for a little bit. And eventually her trump card is, well, why don't you call Kendall and ask him? And so I'll call Kendall or I'll see him in the office. I'll be like, hey, man, so Debbie says I'm like this. And I start explaining it. And before I'm done, Kendall's like, yeah, you're definitely like that. All right. Well, that's it. I can't. There's nowhere to go now. I have to admit that, don't I? He's saying we need community, friends who will encourage and exhort one another like this every day. I spent some time with your gospel community leaders last night, wonderful group of people. 
And we talked about this. Excuse me. How how can we cultivate groups in which this becomes normal? Where where people are encouraging and exhorting one another, helping us see the gaps in our lives and pointing each other to Jesus because he's the only one who can fill the gap. How often do we do that? Well, he says exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, which is a weird phrase. It's like, do you ever exist in a day that you don't call today? All right, well, so then all the time, you need this kind of community. If you want to do this and not just talk about it, here's my advice. Go to your gospel community this week or your D group, and before things get started, just say, hey, could we take five minutes, and could you guys just help me see the gaps in my life? Now, if you're new, don't do that. That'll be, that'll be weird. People will be like, well, one gap is you think we know you. That's a gap. I, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> so do, do the, yeah. But if you've been around for a while, ask the group. You know what? They won't want to do it. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be, to them, it'll feel like somehow we're not being supportive. And so you'll have to remind them what the stakes are. You'll have to remind them, hey, guys, this is so that our hearts don't get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Please, please, can we do this? Hebrews 3 is about what keeps us from true rest, unbelief. Hebrews 4 is about how we can experience true rest. Not just in what we say, but deep down and in our everyday lives. So Hebrews 4. If what keeps us from rest is unbelief, then how do we experience it? Belief. Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any, soul, any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Do you see the transition? They did not enter into God's rest, because though they heard the good news, they did not respond in faith. But we who have heard the good news about Jesus and responded in faith, we who have believed enter into that rest. Faith, that's how we enter in. Now listen, in the Bible, faith is more than what we just say. Faith is like this combination of love and trust and obedience. It's all those things tied together. And so if you want to experience true rest, I would say Do whatever it takes to stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Do whatever it takes to be compelled to walk in his ways, to be accountable to it, to be encouraged in it and exhorted in it. It's this kind of daily putting ourselves at his feet, daily encountering him, daily trying to walk in his ways. That is the path of true rest. Chapter four ends with a final warning. And a final word of encouragement. The warning is about being exposed, and the encouragement is about being covered. So here's the warning, verse 11. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
Do you hear the Genesis 3 language? When Adam and Eve sinned, they, they realized they were naked. They felt exposed. They tried to hide, but there's nowhere to go because no creature is hidden from his sight. He is the one to whom they must give an account. And so these verses are saying that God's word exposes the gaps in our lives. His word is like a surgeon's scalpel. It opens us up, lays us bare, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's pretty scary, right? To be laid bare before the creator and judge. You got no hope of standing on your own. I promise you. We're naked and exposed, as Adam and Eve were naked and exposed. This word exposed literally means to twist the neck. It's a word that was used when soldiers would stretch back the neck of their enemy to cut it, which is why you get this sword imagery in there. These are verses about judgment. God's word judges and destroys those who turn against him. So the alternative to God's rest is God's wrath. And that's why all of Hebrews is this urgent plea to hold fast to our confession and our faith in Christ. And you see it in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The priest brings people near to God. So to give up on Jesus is to be cut off from the presence of God. But to believe in Jesus is to be covered with his righteousness. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus is transcendent. He passed through the heavens, and, but he's approachable. He understands us. He became one of us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. We can come to him. And so verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, this is how we experience true rest, to trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf and to draw near to him daily to receive mercy and to find grace and help in our time of need. So wrath or rest? We deserve wrath, but because of Jesus, we can have rest. We deserve to be cut off, but Jesus was cut off in our place. On the cross, Jesus was naked and exposed, utterly, cast into just cosmic unrest. What is that about? That's about the Son of God taking on flesh and taking on the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve because of our sin. He went through all of that in our place. And when he had done it, when he had finished his work, he breathed his last and he entered into his rest. Soon, he'll come back and our rest will be made full. But until then, we walk by faith. 
We come here. We gather in gospel communities to encourage and exhort one another. We gather around the Lord's table to be nourished by him, to, to bear witness to one another of his resurrection. But when he comes, and we wait for that day, our rest will be full. Let's pray. Jesus, we wait for you with longing and heavy hearts. And we accept your invitation to enter into your rest now. To have the burden lifted now by your grace. To know what it is to be covered in your righteousness. To have our anxieties lifted because you care for us. To have confidence in such a chaotic and uncertain world because we know that your return is sure. Lord, would you give us that? As we come around your table, would you make real to us your work on the cross, your presence with us, your mission in this world? Things that we know, would they become real to us? We ask it in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.